take you into a into a preacher's life for a moment or two. See, there are some weeks where you start out with joy and pleasure because the next passage you're going to preach on is an old friend. And what to say is easy and straightforward. And so when I preached on this passage about 10 years ago, the passage Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 to 16, I commenced the week with a light and heart and, and was ready to preach already because there's a standard sermon on this passage that you can read in every book or any book on the subject. In fact, you've heard it often. In fact, if you're a preacher, you've most likely given it yourself sometime. Uh, it's, it's what you have always that's the same thing. You start with the metaphors of salt and light and you work out what they are. You say salt is a preservative that uh, stops rotting putrefaction, uh, especially in the age before refrigeration. Light is uh, knowledge and understanding that illuminates the world. And so then you move to the applications. Jesus was teaching his disciples that they were to be both salt and light. They were to preserve and illuminate society. Like salt, they were to permeate society, preserving it in good works and good deeds. And like light, they were to be a beacon to society, illuminating it by the teaching of God's word. And so the disciples were to involve in social action and evangelism, both, not either, but both and, in careful balance between the two. And so here are the two great pillars, the kind of two legs that we walk on, if you like, in Christian life, for a balanced Christian life, social action and evangelism. So by Monday, before morning tea, I had the sermon already worked out, which means that you've got a good week lying ahead of you because there are other things you can get on with because Sunday's sermon is sorted. But perchance I remembered, as I was just going for coffee, somebody suggesting that salt had other uses than preservative in the ancient world. Furthermore, he had suggested that the word earth really may mean the land of Israel rather than the world. And the world may not be looking at worldwide, it may be looking at the nations and the Gentiles. And so really what is being said is you are to be the salt of Israel and the light of the nations. But what was the salt? What does it mean to be the salt of the land, the salt of Israel? So being an easier sermon than most, I looked up, uh, the historical background to the use of salt. I got down a great dictionary of the ancient world, an encyclopedia of the ancient world, and to my horror, I discovered that the ancient world's options to use salt were many and varied. Uh, they used it for taste and preservative, yes, but there were all kinds of other usages. And so I've listed out some of them. Here are the first 12 that are documented in the ancient world from my encyclopedia. There was taste, there was preservative, but it's also used medicinally. It was used as a form of taxation. It was used uh, for rubbing into newborn babies. It was used as a way of judgment and destruction because if you want to destroy your neighbour's land, you salted the land because if it's salted, then it can't be used for anything. It was also used as a way of cursing because of that destructive element. You would sprinkle salt at someone as a way of cursing them. 
However, salt is also used in all cattle feed and it's also used in all fertiliser. A little bit of salt is necessary. I understand even today's fertilisers have salt in them. It's a necessary component of fertilisers. Too much destroys the land, but a little bit helps the land. And it also became a sign of friendship because eating meals is a way of friendship and most meals have salt. And so one of the ways of talking about being a friend would say, let's share salt with each other. So it was a form of friendship. And it was used in all the sacrifices because meals were generally sacrificed in the ancient world. And because of that, it also became a sign of a covenant between people. One of the ways of having a covenant is you have a meal together, like we have a wedding breakfast together. Uh, The word breakfast is not actually right, is it? We rarely have a breakfast at, at a wedding. I've had early morning weddings, but never so early that we had to wait till after the wedding before we have breakfast. But we use the word breakfast because it's a way of saying, well, we, we break the fast, we, we're now celebrating the new day that's coming. And so salt is a, a sign of the meal of celebration and therefore it's a covenant that we have between each other. So now that I've got 12 different meanings, which one did Jesus mean when he said, you are the salt of the earth? Well, I thought about it and I thought it would be better to limit my inquiry just to what the Bible says. The ancient world might have all these usages, but what was the Bible's usage? Because Jesus was a Bible man. And so I looked at the historical background, interesting as it was, but I looked for the biblical options and I went to my concordance and I looked up every reference of salt in the Old Testament and looked up what each one of them meant. But when I looked up the biblical usages of salt, I discovered that the list was now longer. For not only could I find nearly all the ancient world usages, but I also found a few more that were not listed in the secular historians of the ancient world. So, for example, salt was used for purifying. It's a weird one where the prophet Elisha throws salt into a water and it becomes pure, but it's there. And also it was a way of saying you're on the royal play to actually be on the salt. Now, most of these, you'll notice, are in the Old Testament and so could easily have been meant by Jesus or understood by his disciples. So what did Jesus mean when he said, you are the salt of the earth? I thought, therefore, it's best to limit the biblical options to the parallels in Jesus' usage. Where else does Jesus talk of salt, and what did he mean when he used it elsewhere? Now, there are several usages, but the closest one, the closest parallel that you come to is Luke 14. Salt is good, but if it's lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Salt is no longer any good for the manure. I presume that's not a matter of taste. It's not being used for taste in manure. That would seem to be a very unlikely possibility. So why would you put salt in a manure pile? Well, because you have the manure pile for fertilising. That's one of the usages of salt. So the disciples are to be the fertilisers of the earth and the light of the world. Well, what does it mean to be a fertiliser of the earth? And how is that parallel to being the light of the world? I may add, you see, from a preacher's point of view, by this time, the week is fast passing. 
Whereas an early Monday morning, I had my sermon written before morning tea, by the time I'd researched out all this, it was Wednesday or Thursday, and the secretary was wanting the outline of the sermon, because when was it coming, and I didn't have a sermon by that stage of the game, I just had massive confusion. When, what is it that Jesus meant when he said, you are the salt? All this digging around in the ancient world and the Bible doesn't give me any certainty of thought as to what Jesus meant. We're left actually with uncertainty. But that uncertainty is very valuable. Frustrating because I want an answer and the congregation's expecting one on Sunday morning and they're not like university lecturers. You can never actually get a deferment. You can never kind of get them to delay it or something like that. The congregation actually sit waiting for you to be ready on time. So I want quick answers. But it's a valuable uncertainty because it prevents you from being overconfident. That is, background studies of the Bible disprove and challenge false meanings, but they don't often give you the meaning. It's worth investigating the background because you can say, well, it couldn't have meant that because they didn't know that at that time, or it couldn't have meant this, or it could have meant these other things other than you were thinking of, but it doesn't actually tell you what the text means. It's valuable, but what value is this for the preacher and the Bible reader? See, we want to know what it means, not what we cannot know, or that it could mean a dozen different things. It's important to know what Jesus meant. Uncertainty is also important because it opens our minds to possibilities because it forces us to go back and look what is actually said rather than what we thought we knew before we even read the text. And because we find his meaning not actually in the background, but in the foreground, in the context, not in the background context, but in the foreground, the basic context. It's right there in the passage in front of us. Because you'll notice that I looked at the passage and then I worked out what I was going to say without paying too much attention to the passage. And when I thought about it, I went off to dictionaries and I looked at the background of the ancient world and then I looked at the background of the Old Testament, then I looked at the background of the New Testament. But the answer's right there in the foreground. This is what we've got to speak about. This is what, what is the Bible actually saying? And in this contextual foreground, we remember that Matthew has been telling us Jesus about Jesus' kingdom mission, how he went about preaching the imminent coming of the kingdom of heaven, enacting its arrivals with miracles and healings and exorcism and calling upon people to repent, to be prepared for the coming of the kingdom by repentance and calling on his disciples to assist him to be fishers for men and how huge crowds from all over Palestine came to him and chapter 5 verse 1 Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he withdrew with his disciples and taught them about the dangers of popularity. For when you read through the whole Sermon on the Mount, as I skipped through it with you last week, you start to see the dangers of popularity. They thought Jesus was fishing for men. Thousands were coming. This looks like it. But Jesus is wanting to say to you, many, many will be on the road to destruction. Few are on the road to eternal life. 
Many will come and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, do mighty works in your name? And I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you workers of unrighteousness. The Sermon on the Mount is a great warning about ministerial popularity. And so he spoke of the blessed persecution, chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. That was to be their blessing in the kingdom of heaven. All the other blessings, verses 2 through to verse 10, are the blessings of other people, of all the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But verse 11, blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There are many blessings that will come with the kingdom of heaven. But the blessings that will be the disciple's special one is the blessing that you can have right here and now in this world. The others are all future tense. This is a present tense blessing. The blessing of being persecuted for righteousness. Here's the punchline of the Beatitudes. When Jesus moves from the blessings of others to the blessings of the fishermen, and the blessing is that you'll be offside with the world. And then in that context, he says to the fishermen, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. But the context is not only what comes immediately beforehand, but also what comes afterwards. It's like watching a sporting event, watching it on television or in real life. If you want to see where the ball goes, you look at the follow-through, be it golf, be it tennis, be it cricket. It's where the person is hitting towards is how your eye can follow where the ball has gone if your eyes are still good enough and you're not using multifocals and have to keep your head at the right angle at the time. It's generally easier to have a caddy find the ball for you, I think, after a certain age. But what is the follow-through? Well, in the next passage, chapter 5, verses 17, right through to chapter 6, verse 33, in other words, the bulk of the rest of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, he's describing how the disciples must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Indeed, the whole sermon when starts outlining different kinds of righteousness. So with our false confidence shattered by a study of the background history, the background in and outside the Bible, and with a little bit more attention being paid to the foreground, it's time to actually look at what salt and light is about. So let's revisit those. What did Jesus mean? Salt that has lost its saltiness is useless. A lamp that is lit and put under a bushel is useless. Notice three things. The metaphor of salt and light are not about the substance but about their usefulness or their uselessness in the action. The point is, if you're being a light, don't be hidden. If you're being salt, you must be salty. Secondly, the key to both these metaphors is distinctiveness, is difference, observable difference, light in darkness, salt and its saltiness. And thirdly, there is a third metaphor, not just two metaphors. There's salt, there's light, but there's also a city set on a hill. This doesn't seem to be different. 
It's not a contrasting metaphor, but another one that is just like the other two. Salt and light must be distinctive and observable, like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. You can't avoid the city on the hill. It will be seen. So salt is a distinctive to be of any use at all. It must remain in its saltiness. Whatever use you're using it for, it must remain distinctive. If it ever loses that saltiness, then it is useless. Now at this point, a little bit of background knowledge will help the one or two chemists who are in this room. If you're not a chemist, you don't have a problem. But if you're a chemist, you have a problem. That is, it's impossible for salt to lose its saltiness. You can't actually get salt to lose its saltiness. So what does Jesus mean? And it's background information that helps you. See, background information is not totally useless. It has its helps. That is, the Dead Sea salt was the salt that was used in the ancient Palestinian world and the Dead Sea salt was heavily mixed with gypsum, white substance of much the same character. And when the salt was leached out of the compound, the only thing left was the gypsum and the gypsum was unsalty. And so salt of the ancient world could lose its saltiness because it was a mixture compound. It wasn't pure salt like the, the salt you and I have. A totally useless piece of minutia, but it will save me answering the three chemists who are going to come to me later and say, but salt never loses its saltiness, how come? So just in case anyone else asks you on another occasion, there are pedants amongst chemists as there are in everything else in this world. So there is your answer to that from the background. Anyway, let's come back to what the text is saying. Unsalty salt is useless. A hidden light is useless. And so... You are not to be useless, but to be useful, you must be different. You must be observably different. You must be like a city on a hill that can't be hidden different. And this difference has to be so observable. Now with these two twin elements of the distinctive observable nature of salt, light and a city on a hill, Jesus then reaches his conclusion in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine before others. Be observable so that they can see your difference. They can see that you're not the same. They can see your good works. For the difference he's speaking of is the difference of good works. The kind of good works that will lead them to glorify your Father who is in heaven. That your good works are not to be like their good works. The way your light shines is not the same as the way their light would shine. For when people see your good works, what do they praise? Generally, when you see someone's good works, you praise the person who did the good works. Isn't he a nice man? Isn't she a fine woman? What a kind and thoughtful person. What a noble and generous idea. What a, what a good man that is. They glorify you for the good works that you've done. But the disciples' good works 
are to bring not glory and praise to themselves. The disciples' good works are to bring glory and praise to the Father who is in heaven. That's a different kind of good work. That people will see you do that and they'll say, God the Father has changed that person. People are to see us and say, he's doing that because he's a Christian. That's not normal. It's it's God that has worked in his life to change him to be like that. There's God at work in these people. The Americans have a wonderful phrase, which is quite old, which we've never used, partly because it's very bad grammar. They talk about he's got religion. And what you've got to do is get religion. It's an awful phrase, but it's a good phrase. Because they know what it means. It means two things very clearly. One, he's been converted. And two, he's no longer living the old immoral life that he used to live. And so someone who was the the town drunk, the womaniser, the cheat, the thief, who suddenly cleans up his act and they say, what's happened to old Fred? Ah, he's got religion. That's what's happened to him. It's a beautiful phrase because it's saying not Fred has become a good person, but Fred has been affected by God. Now, it's to show, live with such good works that people see you and glorify your Father who is in heaven rather than glorify you. All children walk and act and talk just like their parents, don't they? Those of us who are parents know how irritating it is when you see your children doing the most unpleasant part of your personality, character, language and the like. You would like them to take on the nice bits, but they always seem to pick up the other bits. Maybe that's because with me there's so many other bits. We now have God as our Father. We are to so walk and talk and act that people will see our true parentage and therefore will not praise us but praise the God who has made us. They will praise God for the repentant life that we are living. Now, of course, that will actually require them to find out our family name. They'll have to be told who God is to realise who we are and why we're doing what we're doing. Because if they do not know of the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, they do not know we're Christians, why? They don't know, do they? Uh, Because I live in Piermont and walk across to town most days of the week, I'm always having tourists stopping me and asking for help and directions as to where to go. And I show them where to go or where they're going and and they thank me and they thank me as a really nice man and I want to run up a little flag and say, no, I'm a Christian because you say they glorify me for being nice and aren't Australians wonderful because they recognise I'm an Australian. I can never work out how they do that, but they do. But they don't recognise me as a Christian and so they don't praise Christianity, they don't praise God and Father, they praise Australia or they praise me when, in fact, it is because of the Lord Jesus Christ I do anything that I do. I may say it's very difficult over there when they ask me the way to the the casino. Never sure how I should answer that question, like 
save your money, don't go, or send them off down to, 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 to Ultimo or somewhere else and, and tell them a lie. I'm never quite sure the right answer. It doesn't feel right for a man who is a leader of the anti-gambling fraternity of the community to say, oh, it's the casinos just around the corner. That's where you can go and lose all your money if you want to. But that's just one of those little difficulties you might... It's very hard to... No, I'm a Christian, so I'm not going to tell you where it is. Ha, ha, ha. I mean, what's the option that I have on that kind of question? But being kind to people is not enough for them to glorify your father. You must actually tell them who your father is, that they may know. Ten years ago, there appeared in the morning paper a very sad letter, sad but perceptive, about a life worth living. It was entitled, Their Future is Not Worth Fighting For. And I read, Education is not a key to the drug prevention. As a young person, I find it extremely insulting that politicians believe that the reason we may lead unsafe lifestyles that consist of drugs and unsafe sex is because we do not know any better or do not have access to effective education. Do they really believe those teenagers living on the streets addicted to heroin do not know what they're doing with their bodies? The question is not whether they have been educated, the question is whether they even care what they're doing with their bodies. Pouring money into programs that tell kids that drugs are harmful and potentially fatal is both futile and ineffective. These kids already believe that. They have no future. To effectively prevent so many young people turning to drugs, we need to look beyond the drugs themselves and beyond the law and its penalties. We need to look far deeper and see why these kids turn to drugs in the first place and deal with the multitude of issues that lead them to believe that their future is not worth fighting for. I reckon that letter could be written in the paper this morning, couldn't it? I don't think the discussion has moved on in ten years. We're in exactly the same place as we were then because we have not done what the author, that young author of that letter said. Jesus calls us to live a different, a praiseworthy life, a life worth living. And a life that is worth living is always a life that is worth persecuting. A life that is distinctive, a life of moral integrity that can only come from our Heavenly Father, a life that challenges and confronts everything in our society and around us, a life that is based in repentance and the call to repent, a life which is a light in a dark society. And it's a praiseworthy life, but the praise does not go to us. It's directed to the one who makes the changes of life possible. It's directed to our Heavenly Father, the one who can and will transform us like this. John Chrysostom was born 347 AD and died 407 AD, so we're talking 4th century, a long time ago, was born in Antioch in Syria. He was raised by a widowed Christian mother. A very powerful person is a widowed Christian mother. He was an ascetic monk who became the Patriarch of Constantinople in 398 BC, uh, AD, of course. He was a great preacher and a Bible commentator whose commentaries are still read to this day. 
he challenged the corruption of that city and was fiercely opposed by powerful enemies, including the emperor's wife, because he called them to account for the ways in which they were wasting their wealth on their luxuries in caring for the peoples of society. As a result of the persecution, he was deposed from office and he was exiled from the empire. He was actually ordered to march out into the desert to his death from exposure and exhaustion. When John Chrysostom commented on Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, he said, When our neighbours see us building ourselves fine houses and laying out gardens and baths and buying fields, they are not willing to believe that we are preparing for another residence away from the city. Do you not hear Christ say that he left us to be salt and lights in the world in order that we may both brace up those who are melting in luxury and enlighten those who are darkened by the care of wealth. Isn't that a lovely phrase? To be darkened by the care of wealth. For is that not our city? In darkened by the care of wealth, melting in luxury. Isn't that our city? That is what he preached against. But notice what he's saying. If we are there laying out gardens and baths and buying fields and we are no different from the society around about us. And if we're no different from the society around about us, what have we got to say to society? How can you fish for men when you're swimming amongst them? You actually have to be in the boat or on the land or on the rock. You have to be out of the water. The fishermen were, as we are, called to live lives that will bring praise of your father. And what kind of life will it be? Well, it's, that's what the Beatitudes are accounting for us in verses 3 through to 10. Will we poor in spirit and mourn and meek and hunger and thirst for righteousness? and be merciful and pure in heart and peacemakers and persecuted. The distinctive righteousness of the kingdom of heaven is essential for those who would call people into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would be with us, that each person here this day, sheltering from this rain, may shelter from your wrath in the person of the Lord Jesus, that we may indeed, each and every one, have so repented and turned back that we acknowledge him to be our Lord. And having come to that salvation in your kingdom, will be transformed by the spirit of your risen son into the people who will bring glory to you by the way in which we live. That our lives will be so changed, so marked, so transformed 
that people will see our good works and not glorify us, but glorify you, our Father in heaven. And that from that position we may be able to preach to them the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ and call upon them to that repentance that by your Spirit you have given to us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.